Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. As an entrepreneur, I was running myself initially into the ground, working almost like, you know, 15 to 18 hour days, seven days a week. And it's exhausting. I learned that you have to build a team around you that knows what they're doing, that you can train and that you stay positive with and that is interested in helping the company grow. And I think once that started to happen, once those things sort of clicked into place, just things got easier. And when things got easier, you started realizing you were on the right track. And when you realized you were on the right track, yeah, you started to feel like you're going to make it. is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Jennifer McGee is an entrepreneur business owner. She has a master's degree in real estate development from Columbia University, and she's the founder and owner of Retail in the City, an architecture and design company based in New York City. Over the past 10 years, Jennifer has designed and planned over 10 million square feet of retail space for over 100 different clients, including widely recognized and acclaimed projects such as the duty-free shops at JFK Airport in New York City, Saks Off Fifth Department Stores, Barnes & Noble Bookstores, The Sharper Image, and many more that you would certainly be familiar with. She's also designed millions of square footage of retail space outside the U.S. in countries ranging from Russia to China to the Caribbean island of Barbados. One of her most impressive achievements, from my perspective, is that she's built her business so that she can run it from anywhere around the world with total location independence, and she has utilized that to travel to 53 countries. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt, for having me. And I just want to sort of set the scene for people. We are now in Prague in the Czech Republic, and we are drinking a <laughs> bottle of Chilean Carmenere wine, uh, which uh, we started doing back in Kuala Lumpur. In fact, we had our first Carmenere party. That's right. We started the precedent there. Sort of a, sort of a recurring theme. So we're doing this interview. It's about uh, 11 p.m., and uh, we're about to get into your life and your entrepreneurial venture and all sorts of other uh, fun and exciting things. So let's start off with your story. You moved, you were from Texas originally, you moved to New York City in your 20s to 
pursue your dreams, wide-eyed. And what was that like? Set the scene for us. Tell us what New York was like when you moved there and what happened. Well, I moved to New York, yes, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, I think you could say. (laughs) And in 2000, uh, it was actually um, July of 2000, I was moving there from Tennessee, uh, where I'd been teaching at the University of Tennessee in architecture. And I was prompted to go there by some of my fellow colleagues and professors that I was teaching with. They were all from New York, and they said, get up, you need to go to New York. You know, pursue, go go see what the profession's about up there. Go check it out. So sure enough, I I followed their their lead, and I went up there and uh, took a job. This was post, or pre, sorry, pre-9-11, so uh, one year before uh, September 11th. My first job was actually working at a large architecture firm. Uh, down in downtown uh, financial district at the time, uh, working in the World Trade Center towers. So I worked right across from the two towers. Uh, We did planning and uh, site development and tenant plans for uh, basically Lehman Brothers and J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, And Lehman Brothers at the time uh, was looking at a strategic takeover, shall we say, of one of the towers. And uh, that was my first sort of intro into New York. I lasted at that firm for about a year. Uh, Quit jobs, went to go work for a small firm right before 9-11 happened. And that was sort of started my whole uh, career, I guess. And how did your entrepreneurial trajectory take place? So you Mm. were working at an architecture firm uh, and take us from there to your decision to uh, become a business owner. Well, it was definitely not a linear process. Uh, I started uh, at a very large firm, one of the biggest firms uh, basically practicing in the world. Decided that the kind of corporate uh, approach to things was just not my style. Uh, So I jumped ship, went to a very, very small firm. There was three of us, uh, basically two partners, myself. And we kind of grew the business to about seven people. It was still pretty small the whole time I was there for a couple years. But what I loved about it and what I learned that I loved about it is just that I was involved in everything. And that meant cleaning bathrooms, taking out the trash, you know, answering the phone because we didn't have a receptionist, working out of my boss's apartment in the East Village, um, all kinds of things. Like I just loved being hands-on. I wanted to know everything about the practice. I wanted to know what it was like to talk to a client. I wanted to know what it was like to, uh, you know, make a business decision, know how the finances worked, you know, just help be part of a complete and total team. So uh, the limitations of that, of course, is like, where do you move up? How do you move up um, in in advancing your career? How do you expand? Uh, So there was, you know, I felt like I learned everything that I needed to learn at that. And then I kept moving. So moved on, went back to grad school, was looking for new opportunities, and and that eventually led me to basically start my own business. So take us to that juncture um, and talk a little bit about that transition, because I think there's a lot of people that they're in a particular profession, they know it very well, they're very good at it, they may be disillusioned with the corporate environment, uh, and they dream of potentially starting their own business. But there's oftentimes a big 
shall we say, chasm or perceived chasm between wishing you could do it, (laughs) wanting to do it, even envisioning it, and then actually taking the leap. So can you talk about your leap, uh, if you will, any, you know, fears that you had to overcome or, or what it was that got you to make the leap and how that leap went for you? Well, you know, it's it's very challenging. I, you can always look back on your trajectory and realize what you did at the time and why you did it. But it's very hard trying to formulate it from, you know, the beginning and project it forward. It's not a linear path. And anybody that thinks it's a linear path, I think that's where people get hung up um, because they think that it has supposed to go a certain way. All I can say is that you just have to keep believing in yourself and what you want to do, and you have to keep learning. Uh, My big thing was that I was just interested in learning. Uh, I would jump ship when I felt like I had learned all I was going to learn and that there was a new opportunity out there where I could learn something new and get more excited. So I went back to grad school, you know, because I thought that would at least catapult me to something else. Didn't know what it was, didn't know how it would work out, didn't know if I would like it. But that was it. I went back. I did a, you know, a degree in real estate development, went to Columbia. Completely challenging environment. Completely fascinating you know, environment with people from all over the world, people that were coming in with all kinds of different backgrounds, pure chaos, total chaos, really. Uh, you know, um, but you come out of it just whole different perspective, right? Whole different mindset. But then, of course, reality can kick in as, as well. And my next thing was, okay, what do I do next? So one of my first things coming out of grad school was to do a startup. That failed (laughs) three years later. But again, it was something that came out of my experience. It was a particular, like I was basically trying to meld sort of a tech concept, introduce it into the real estate world, do a LinkedIn sort of concept for the building industry, put all my energy, all my effort behind it. But at the same time, you know, I don't know, the market wasn't ready for it. I wasn't experienced enough to deliver it. There were all kinds of issues or complications with it. But that step led me to eventually closing the business, starting with another company, just getting my bearings again. I went into retail design, worked for a mid-sized firm, started to, again, found my foothold um, and uh, just kind of, again, kept going from there. A lot of this is like, you just keep going, just keep going and see what happens. Um, I couldn't have predicted that after that 2008 and the 2008 crash would happen. That basically killed the firm that I was working for. I mean, it went from a 35-person firm to, we went to like 20 people, then we went down to 10, then we put everybody on part-time. I was like one of the last people standing. Um, before the firm was completely dissolved. And it was only out of the ashes of that that I was able to, for the first time, successfully start to build the company I have today. Amazing. So let's talk about the company you have today and how you built that. So starting from that point that you just left off at, take us from there through the story and talk about the difficult parts. Talk about the early days of being an entrepreneur. You and I have, we're just recently discussing uh, some friends who are starting off in their businesses and really having that early stage struggle and just grinding to try to get by and get through and get to the next stage. So talk about, you know, I think entrepreneurship a lot of time is romanticized and things like that, but talk about the slog and the grind and what were those early days like? And, you know, also, you know, any 
failures, you know, that you had and struggles that you had sort of paint some of that picture for us. Tell us some stories about that. It's a very lonely time. (laughs) I'll tell you that because you have a great idea, but that idea probably nobody understands what it is. You don't know how to communicate it. It's kind of in your head. Uh, You think you're going to change the world with it, maybe. Uh, I mean, I thought I might change the architecture world and the way that business was done. I was really disillusioned coming out of school with the whole real estate industry and, you know, the way that construction was done. We had learned in school all these amazing, like, how software and different technologies could help integrate and help with collaboration and... You know, you hit the real world where the contractors are just like construction is messy and the contractors don't get along with the architects and the architects don't get along with the interior designers and there's just all this sort of mess and consternation and you just think, well, what if we could just like create a better system, right? A better system that would help these people communicate and streamline and... But what you, you know, all of those, that great idealistic thought, you know, when you try to start putting it onto paper and create things that these systems, you know, we were trying to create this basically online network where people could sign up. We would have different networking events. We would try to get developers and architects and contractors in the same room. And we would try to get them to like have different resumes, you know, related to projects, all these kind of things, right? We were overly ambitious. The problem is, is that you as an individual, as one business owner trying to make this change, it's hard. It's a lot. You need people. You need supporters. You need enthusiasm. You need workers. You need to actually take the idea and make it you know, do actionable things that will create a working product. You need to test that product. You've got to get your followers and your users on board. You know, all of these things. It takes time, not just energy, but time. Like whatever you, however long you think it'll take, you just multiply by three and add about a hundred days onto that. <laughs> I mean, it's it's all of these kind of crazy things that you you know. So it's pure chaos. It's very lonely. Um, you know, the key thing is really to get the right people involved that support your idea, that can support your idea, but also can put time to it. And a lot of times, you know, time is money. And the hardest thing about being an entrepreneur is if you're starting with no capital and you're burning through capital and you're trying to do this and you're not paying yourself and you're trying to pay some other people, trying to keep everybody afloat, it can just totally, completely wear you down. And I think one of the The biggest challenge is, is how do you get through those periods? You know, how do you find people to support you and, and, and take it to the next level? It's hard. It's very hard. And yeah, it's not talked about a lot, but that's, that's the hardest reality. And so what were some of your strategies for making it through that initial period in terms of when it was that difficult and when it was that hard? What did you do and how did you get through that? And what was your sort of, you know, maybe moment when you finally said, I've made it, this is going to work. This business is going to happen. Take us from there to, to that moment. And what were your strategies for getting there? Well, uh, I think a lot of it was just pure ambition and just pure everything. But you know, the first startup I did, which was the one I was ta- sort of talking about, this LinkedIn for the industry, it was called Upworld at the time, upworld.com. And, uh, you know, I had three other partners, all of this. But I was, what I realized is I was doing most of the work. And I think as a young entrepreneur, part of my struggle was, how do I delegate? One of the biggest questions to me, and that it took me a long time to learn, was how to delegate, how to let go 
how to talk to people about the idea, get people on board with the vision, and then to pass the responsibility off to people you trust and to continue to help them take your vision and implement it. Hard, very, very hard. It takes a while to understand and to figure out how to do that because that's a key element, I think, to growing or scaling or just also, you know, having a life. Uh, because as an entrepreneur, I was running myself initially into the ground, working almost like, you know, 15 to 18 hour days, seven days a week. And it's exhausting. Um, so I think for me, a lot of it was learning. When I, I, I eventually closed that company, I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. And when I started, a, you know, the next company with, with another partner that was more stable, that had more experience, I learned that you have to build a team around you that knows what they're doing, that you can train, and that you stay positive with, and that is interested in helping the company grow. And that finding those people and, and getting them to subscribe to your vision is, I, I think, one of the most important things. And I think once that started to happen, once those things sort of clicked into place, just things got easier. And when things got easier, you started realizing you were on the right track. And when you realized you were on the right track, yeah, you started to feel like you're going to make it. <laughs> so for you and your business, what was your I made it moment? Was it when you landed a particular client or you had a particular breakthrough of some kind in your business, take us to that moment. What was that for you? Absolutely. I mean, I started the business coming out of the ashes of the 2008 market crash. So a lot of it was I partnered with someone else. Our business, the retail design business was totally wiped out. And I, and I don't say that lightly. I mean, it really was many, many firms in our industry, uh, basically closed their doors. I mean, we had staff leaving, going back to their hometowns, moving in with their parents. I mean, it was total chaos. So in that time, I took this huge job as a freelance consultant uh, to do this, this project in Seoul, Korea. I was flying back and forth to Seoul on a regular basis, exhausting myself still. And then finally, with this other partner, we were like, you know what, let's just go back Let's, let's try to get these old clients that we had like 10, 15 years ago. Let's go start talking to them again. And we did. And I knew we had made it when we got Barnes & Noble. And Barnes & Noble invited us in, and we started working for them. And we start, they started you know, coming to us like, we need a new store concept. We want to be more innovative. We need to be more fresh. You know, we've got Amazon coming up. We've got Borders at that point was still sort of around, hadn't quite you know, gone into bankruptcy yet and, and closed its doors. And they were like, we need help. And you know, we worked for them for over two years on a retainer. And yeah, I mean, when we first got the, yeah, you know, you're kind of like, okay, we're doing something right again. <laughs> This is good. We're on the right path, um, and that was that was definitely a moment where you feel you're feeling confidence that you've gotten hired by you know a large corporation that looks to you, trusts you, and is looking to you to like help them innovate. So after you landed Barnes and Noble and you were getting clients of that caliber and you knew the business was was working and was going to work and you had your team around you, from there. The, there is still this concept, which there have been books written about and uh, a lot of entrepreneurs talk about and refer to, which is the concept of the entrepreneurial roller coaster, which is that there are very high highs. And then even when you think you're doing really well, there then all of a sudden things change and there are very low lows. Um, and sometimes that can be a financial setback, but other times it can just be 
emotional just debilitation and loneliness and just really tough, you know, days to kind of, you know, slog through. And I, I certainly experienced that as an entrepreneur. Um, so I wanted to see if you could talk about that as a business owner over your trajectory now of the last eight or nine or so years, how have you dealt with the downside of the entrepreneurial roller coaster? What have been your stress management techniques? What types of things can you share in terms of how to get through those difficult times and continue to be productive and move forward? How have you dealt with that? Well, yeah, I mean, the roller coaster is real. It's intense. Uh, when you're having a high, it's great. But when you're having a low, it's it's rough. So the the main thing I do is is exercise. It's it's a very basic one, but you know what? You got to get your oxygen into your brain. You need to get your heart pumping. A lot of times, you just need a break and, and exercise. I think if you do intense exercise, it just transforms your mindset. Um, it lets you sort of step away from whatever sort of maybe depression or stress that you might be having. I personally am a dancer. I love to go dancing. And the thing about dancing, whether it's at a club or I take, you know, specific lessons somewhere when in New York, all we have, we have access to some of the best dance studios that there is. And I just, anytime there's a workshop or something on the weekend, I sign up all day, like an all eight hour workshop or something even. I mean, it just... I don't know, partly because dance is, requires so much mental as well if, as physical. Uh, I'm not really a runner. I'm not somebody that can go out and just like, you know, some people need that for clarity of thought, but I want to be challenged. So dance for me, like if I'm taking dance lessons, somebody's teaching me things. I actually have to learn those dance moves. I have to translate them. I have to perform. I have to, I mean, it forces me out of my normal little bubble of like introspection and I have to really get out and... And I love it. That's, that's my personal thing. The other thing I do is I jump on a plane and I go somewhere. <laughs> because, you know, like getting out of your familiar environment, sometimes you get into these ruts and you see these things and you're on this pattern. And sometimes you need to break out of that mold. And I book trips last minute. A lot of times I just get on a plane. I'm like, I need to go somewhere. I need to clear my head. I need to think, I need to see things fresh. I'm getting into a rut. I'm saying the old, the same old things and nobody's listening. <laughs> you know, it's not making an impact. Uh, I'm not breaking molds. I'm not looking at things at a fresh perspective. If you can afford it, get on a plane, get on a boat, get on a train and just go somewhere. Even if you don't know where you're going, just like get on a train. It'll stop somewhere and you can get off and then roam around and clear your mind and then get back on again. You know, that's all you have to do. <laughs> that is amazing advice. Um, I mean, two parts, there's two parts that strike me as amazing. One is the concept of the exercise. I think, of course, is certainly proven as important, but, but what you're adding to that is it doesn't necessarily have to be go to the gym and get on the treadmill. It can be things that are more important and directly connected to you, like the dance stuff and things like that. And, and letting, giving yourself an outlet in some way that is really um, intense, 
but also something that you really connect with um, and that really works for you. So you can figure out what that is and have that as a consistent outlet that you use. And then the travel, I, I mean, I of course agree with that 100%. And it's, it's just amazing um, to be able to get out into a new environment and just the different sensory experiences that you have and the way that that affects your your, your mentality and your emotions and everything else is, is really significant. So good, good advice. Let's, um, let me ask you this. What advice have you received over your life that sticks out to you or that, you know, still kind of resonates with you or that you think has really, had really helped you along the way that you can think about that maybe somebody gave you that was particularly useful? Well, I would say, I mean, I come a little bit from an academic background. Uh, I've always, you know, loved school. I never wanted to leave school. I was one of these people that uh, I would have, like, lived in the school environment forever if I could. But um, so for me, a lot of that comes from professors and stuff just saying, you know, make life a journey and just enjoy the journey and learn as you go. I mean, the most... The thing that will always keep you active until, you know, the end of your age is is to be curious and uh, enjoy learning. And what else do you have? If you, if, what, you get into ruts when you put on blinders, when you're not open, when you're... Uh, when you shut yourself off from a lot of different things, you know, there has to be a balance in there. I mean, obviously, repetition and, and having following a routine can also be good because you can be productive. But at the same time, sometimes you need to break that and, and move, you know, to different levels. And I think you just have to get out of that. Uh, and the only way you do that, I think, is to stay curious. Let's get into your productivity habits and how you structure your day, I guess in general, but also particularly when you are traveling, because you are now a digital nomad. You are an itinerant world traveling entrepreneur who travels through different time zones. Uh, You run your business from different continents around the world. And so let's talk a little bit about, I guess in general, and then if if there are specific uh, caveats for you know, the different time zone thing and all that. I know, of course, I remember in uh, Kuala Lumpur, you were closing deals on the rooftop of a bar, a rooftop bar around midnight. You had to leave uh, to go close a deal and then you came back. And so uh, there's all of that. But how do you, let's talk about productivity habits. How do you structure your day? Uh, Generally speaking, you know, what time are you going to bed? What time are you getting up? And what does your day structure look like? How do you optimize your productivity? Well, it's, it's, a bit challenging. I mean, my staff is all around the world. Um, that's been since we started the company. We we have a basically distributed workforce. So uh, my renderers are in Serbia. Uh, my graphic designers in Chile. Uh, I have an interior designer in China. Um, and you know, part of it is trying to maximize their efficiency because I have to get them work. And I have to know what they're doing on their time zone. So that makes my <laughs> me have a 24-hour-7 schedule. But in general, it's about getting in front of them. So it just means that if 
I know we have a certain project, I assign them a certain project, we work together on that project, that I'm generally available at the start of their day or at the end of their day before their next morning to prep them, to work with them, to make sure that they know what they, they're supposed to be doing. So it's not, I don't have to work a typical nine to five day. I have to work a day that's based on their time zone, if that makes sense, and trying to get them to be productive. And we communicate everything sort of, again, online, uh, we'll do chats, or we can do Skype calls, or we can do whatever. Um, so I, I, my my day is very much broken up. Um, I don't work any set hours. I like to sleep in. I'm a creative, so I'm a night person. I come awake at night, so some of my best work is at night. I'm happy to sleep in in the morning. Europe suits me very well for U.S. clients because I can sleep till, well, almost 3 p.m. if I want to. <laughs> Um, and still get up and have a fully functioning work day, um, you know, with clients. But I think the biggest challenge of working with a staff that's distributed and clients and all of that is just time zones, managing time zones. It's all in my head, I have to admit, and the Google Calendar. <laughs> so let's talk about a little more details about your specific business. So one of the things that I think is really interesting and impressive about you is that you as a business owner, entrepreneur, have built a business that is, it's a real business and it's not an online business. It's not an e-commerce business. Uh, it's not a traditionally virtual business. It's an architecture design company and you've built that and you have the caliber of clients of Barnes and Noble and Sharp Ramage and, and so forth. And yet you've built it in a way that allows you to be location independent. So, Talk about that because I think as entrepreneurs come into the space and people want to start businesses, really the vision I think for a lot of people increasingly, uh, and I think it should be for every entrepreneur, is to maximize their location independence. And I think there are some sort of restrictive limiting beliefs about, oh, if I want to be location independent, I need to start like an online business or something like that. But how do you build um, – a business that's not a traditionally virtual business like an architecture design company and create that location independence for yourself. So talk a little bit about how you built that and how it works. How are you able to live in Prague or Cambodia or an island in Thailand like you did uh, last year and run this business? Well, I, I mean, I, I'll be honest, a, a huge advantage is that I do have a partner that's still based in the U.S. So obviously it still helps to have somebody on the ground. Um, but we trade off. I mean, he does a lot of the marketing and new business, so he's able to meet with the clients first off. And then I work with the team. We do all the design work. We do all the production work. We're the sort of, you know, the concept people. So that can be done more with a distributed team. And... Uh, Part of that has to do with the fact that we now design digitally, right? We have computer systems, all of our computer systems. I mean, we use CAD, we're using 3D modeling software, we're using uh, just, you know, basic email and PDFs. I mean, everything that we produce anyway is digitally based. It's not physically based. I mean, very little of it is physically based. Um, the second thing is that we've established ourselves in a very niche market, the retail market. Retail is very specific. Um, and we're the concept people, meaning that we help companies 
basically reposition themselves in the marketplace. So we do marketing, we do branding, we're understanding how a company actually works, how they do sales, where they are, who's their customer. Like we're also working with them to design a retail experience that is different than any of their competitors. So that is different than traditional architecture because traditional architects or most architects are not trained in like how do consumers shop? How do they buy? How would a retailer make more sales? A lot of architects are just trained in making a beautiful building or making a functional building or saving a certain amount of cost. But we're really looking at it from a retail perspective and a different perspective. So in a way that helps us, it frees us up from some of the you know, logistics and the technicality of the architecture. And we partner with local architects to help with the implementation. So we're not, it doesn't require us, therefore, to be on the ground in all of these different locations. And it allows. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I wanna offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. It us to focus on what we do best, which is helping retail stores innovate. All right, let's talk a little bit about your more about your uh, travel experience and what your life looks like as a digital nomad and how you have made choices to go to these different places, live in these different places, visit these different places. Talk a little bit about what travel means to you and sort of some of your experiences and how this whole lifestyle for you has come about with the centrality of travel and living in different places. Well, I've always loved travel. That's just hands down. I mean, this is uh, my 53rd country, I guess, to be in, which is sort of crazy. But I've always seen travel as part of my lifestyle. I don't see it as this thing that you do that's separate um, necessarily. Like, I think travel is life. It's about understanding different cultures. It's about um, just there's just so much enrichment that comes from travel that you can't get anywhere else. And it gives you perspective. I think it makes you humble. Uh, I think it makes you appreciative of what you have. You realize just how different everyone's lives is. And, and, and most people are very gracious. I mean, when I travel, I'm just always blown away at how nice people are and welcoming other cultures are. And, um, you know, it's just, it just blows me away. And it's, it's one of the treats, I guess, of traveling is to be welcomed into a new country and get to see how people live and have them host you. I mean, I, it's, I don't know. It just does it for me every time. And, uh, 
I don't know. I've got, I guess coming from architecture, architecture is one of these professions that encourages travel as well. I mean, study abroad programs and everything. I mean, you can't study architecture in the U.S. and expect to be a good architect if you haven't traveled. Um, it is it is part of the um, culture. Um, and it's always sort of professed that. So when I meet other people in other professions whose professions don't encourage them to travel, it, it confuses me. <laughs> I'm like, how could your profession not encourage you to travel? I mean, that's like, you get so much more perspective. You understand your, you know, what you're doing in the world so much better. So I, I it's one of those no-brainer things that I often don't think about, but I forget that uh, not all professions have, uh, you know, that ability or that... Uh, yeah, opportunity. And you also do a lot of spontaneous and last minute travel decisions, <laughs> <Terribly> so. <laughs> which I think, which I think even increases uh, the caliber of the experiences that you can have doing that. You were telling me about, uh, tell me about the Peru story that you were mentioning to me a while ago and how that went down. Yeah. So, I mean, my business obviously runs a lot on what, you know, we have clients, we we have ups and we have downs during the year. We're very busy in the summer months, but sometimes we get, you know, a lull. And sometimes I don't know that lull is going to come until, you know, a couple weeks before, sometimes a couple of days before. And when it comes, I like to take advantage of it because I may not get a break again and, you know, for another three months. So I want to go somewhere. I want to do something. I want to enjoy myself. So, yeah, I wanted uh, Machu Picchu has been on my list for a long time. Uh, This was a couple years ago. And uh, it was August and I was sitting around and all of a sudden I was like, you know what? All my clients, they've kind of gone off on holidays for August. They're sort of Labor Day's coming up. Nothing's really happening. I was like, you know what? I need to go on a trip. Where am I going to go? So I just, you know, start. Where's my hit? You know, where's my top 10, you know, list? What am I going to do? Machu Picchu. Why haven't I done that? So I sign up, go to a group, try to find, you know, basically a trip there. Sign up. Uh, I can't get the Inca Trail. I've been Obviously, permits are very important as part of going to Peru and doing the whole hike. So when I was talking to one of the agencies, they were like, you know what? We have the Quarry Trail. The Quarry Trail, very little known trail, but it's quite good. You should try it. I was like, all right, this is two weeks out. We can get you a permit for the for the Quarry Trail. We cannot get you, you know, six months in advance is what you need for the Inca Trail, Quarry Trail, two weeks out. I think we can swing this. So uh, sure enough, they pull it off for me. I get there, I get down to um, the place where I'm supposed to be. And uh, I'm, of course, assuming, you know, I'm going with a whole group of people and that we're going to do this five-day trek, um, you know, basically to get to Machu Picchu. I'm the only one there. Uh, they introduced me to the guide. This is your personal guide. Uh, here's your two horsemen. Here's your three horses. And basically, you're cook. And uh, it's all for you because nobody else is on this trip. Why? Because I signed up last minute and they, you know, basically moved mountains to make it happen. But there was nobody else to go. So uh, it was very funny. The guide uh, greeted me. He said, hi, you are the queen for the week. Whatever you want to do. And I just laughed at him. But he was uh, he was the nicest guy. And we had a great time. They were amazing. They, uh, I mean, it was a private tour for basically a group rate and um yeah phenomenal experience and the quarry trail i would argue is just as good as the inca trail not that i've been on it but phenomenal views phenomenal everything and uh all to myself amazing i (laughs) i as well did machu picchu last year although i did not do the long hike i did the train down to aguas calientes Mm. and then the bus ride up to machu picchu for the day 
So um, amazing. Yes. <laughs> so I saw the Machu Picchu. I did not do the extended hike, although I've heard it is amazing, both the Inca, Twi- Inca Trail and now, you know, the Quarry Trail as well. And you might even get to be a queen and have an entire entourage of people attending to you and you alone if you book last minute and there's nobody there. So <laughs> excellent, excellent advice. What would be of the all the places that you've been, 53 countries, and I'm sure multiple cities within a number of those countries you've probably been to, what would you say, if you had to pick your top three travel destinations that you've been to or that you might recommend to somebody else to go to? And let us let me caveat this by saying, if you were to go there to live for a month, like places you've been that you would really just love to go back and just live and immerse yourself and spend time there, uh, if you had to go back to three places for a month, what, what would be your top three? Well, that, I mean, always a challenge. Barcelona is one of my top favorites. Um, I just think it's a it's a beautiful city, but it's also an engaging, active city and uh, lots of youthful energy. So it's changing. Like Europe is amazing, but sometimes it can feel a little museum like. It can feel a little bit, you know, a little bit quiet. Maybe not the energy that you expect from somewhere like New York or L.A. or some, you know, the cities that we're kind of used to uh, in the U.S. or even London. Uh, but Barcelona is one of those cities that I just feel like has a really interesting blend of the old and the new. It's just, um, and just a lot of great energy, just walking down the streets, getting lost, the architecture, um, the food, the nightlife. I mean, it's just one of those cities. And I lived there for, for over a month. I lived there for five weeks, many years ago. And, and it was one of those cities that just, yeah, stole my heart. It's amazing. I lived there for five weeks just last year. In Mm. fact, and I have to imagine as an architect, I mean, the Gaudi, the Gaudi stuff is just, oh, I mean, yeah. it's unbelievable. Yeah, the old Gothic Quarter, just yeah. getting lost in the streets yeah. of the Gothic Quarter. And uh, Los Rambles is just yeah. an amazing place. And, and I lived in uh, El Born, which was my favorite I district did. in the yeah. entire city. I just the food and just it was just the whole thing just blew me away. I mean, it was, it made a little bit less out of the touristy, just slightly adjacent to the major tourist section, but just amazing. So I, I agree. In the Montjuic, you can go up and see the whole city and you can go out to the Park Gel and see all of the uh, amazing, amazing, amazing things there. So yeah, very special place. And right on the water. So there's the, the whole- Yeah, the beach, the Mediterranean Sea. Trains everywhere. You can go off to uh, France. It's so easy to just get up to France and then get over to the rest of Spain. I mean, to me- yeah. South Spain is beautiful too. Yeah, uh, Cordoba and uh, Granada and Sevilla. Uh, it's all amazing. I fell in love with Spain. I spent about three months there last year, and I just fell completely in love with it. I, mm. uh, um, you know, the wine there is so <laughs> it's so good. Yes, it's let's so, talk we, about wine. We, yeah, we should talk about wine because we're <laughs> drinking it now. We're doing this Chilean Carmenere at the moment, um, which is amazing. It's a whole other story as to why story. we're drinking this. Why we're drinking? Yeah, we do these Carmenere parties periodically. So we did one in uh, Kuala Lumpur. And then we did another one in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Mm-hmm. And now we're doing a Carmen Year night in uh, Prague in the Czech Republic. So we're doing international Carmen Year nights. I, so I lived, yeah, I guess just the context right for this is I lived in Santiago, Chile last year for a month and had never heard of Carmen Year. If you've never heard of it, it's, um, it's a varietal, right? It's a grape. It's a type of grape. Um, and... Um, I believe it's originally from Bordeaux, kind of like the Malbec and, you know, those types of grapes. And when they come, when they came down to South America, they brought those grapes down. They found that, you know, the Malbec grows probably the best in the world in Argentina in that particular climate, even arguably 
better than it does in uh, some of the French vineyards. And then the Carmenier grape grows the best in the Chilean wine uh, climates, arguably even better than it does in these European vineyards. And so um, arguably the best Carmenier in the world is in Chile. And I had never even heard of the grape and never heard of the type of wine until I went there. And that is their... Their specialty, and I just started drinking it. It tastes so much different from from other wines that I've had. It's a very distinct taste, and um, so I've just been telling everybody about it. And uh, when we got to Kuala Lumpur, I said, "You got to try this Carmenere thing." I was just been drinking it for this whole month in Chile, and so sure enough, we did it, and we've been having a, a Carmenere nights ever since. But but in Spain. Uh, and most of Europe, right? The wine in Europe, and if, if people are from the U.S. and they haven't spent time in Europe, the wine in Europe is probably 25% the cost of the wine in the U.S., right? If you go to buy oh, a glass yeah. of wine in New York, you're talking at least $12 or more for a glass. And the same glass of the same wine in Spain or a number of other European countries might be $3 might be cheaper know, than water. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it might be might be three dollars as opposed to twelve to fifteen dollars for the same glass of wine. So you can drink this amazing Rioja, Riojas in Spain and stuff. So you know, so I started it was so cheap and it was so good. I just started drinking it for lunch because everybody drinks wine for lunch there, you know. And um, then people were like, "Well, you know, I've, I'm explaining this to people. They start drinking red wine with lunch like all the time, and they're like, yeah, don't you get like.'" super exhausted in the afternoon if you're drinking wine, two glasses of wine for lunch every day. I was like, yeah, that's why they have a siesta. siesta. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, the Spanish culture makes so much sense to me now. You know, It's amazing. They know what they're doing. They really do. It's amazing. <laughs> and the food is just absurdly good. And it's just, yeah, Spain is just, I really fell in love with that country. So uh, full endorsement for Barcelona <laughs> and another a number of other parts in, in Spain as well, the South also. And I lived in the North. I lived in Bilbao in the Basque country for a month, which is also fantastic. So different, yeah. Totally different. Madrid is its own thing. That's an amazing place as well in its own right. And uh, yeah, a lot of incredible stuff there. So, okay. So, so back to your list, <laughs> you got Barcelona. What would be your other two that you'd love to go back and live for? A month? Uh, Dublin. Uh, Dublin is just like, it's kind of a second home for me. That's, that's partially it. My father's originally from Ireland. So I do have my Irish passport. I can go there. I've got a lot of friends from there. And I just love the drinking culture and the community and the people. Just so much. Again, for me, a lot of times it's the people. I mean, um, the energy of people, the openness of people, the welcomingness of people. And you know, how, how quickly can you feel like you actually live somewhere versus being a tourist? And if I go to Dublin, I feel like I live there within a couple of days. Well, and Dublin has a very special place in my heart as well. I'm also of Irish heritage, but Dublin was the first place that I traveled to extensively outside the U.S. I guess technically it was the second. I went briefly to London with, uh, with my father, I think, when I was probably 18 or something, just for a short trip, less than a week. But what I did is I studied abroad in Dublin my junior year of college. I went to Trinity College for the year. And that was just a completely life-changing mm. experience for me. It was my first time being away from home for an extended period. And, well, no, I shouldn't say that. I was, I mean, I was away for college from home, but it was my first time being out of the country, which means you're 
really far away from home. Uh, so it was my first international residency experience and uh, I lived in Dublin for the year and it was unbelievable, right? I mean, Dublin was an extraordinary city. It was an amazing place to be and it has so much just nostalgic memories for me from that period in my life and what that did for me at that age, being in another country and living and just being able to do that. And then it also gave me the proximity to the rest of Europe. And so over the winter break of the year that I was there, my roommate and I got one month Euro rail passes, which at the time for students, you could go to any of, it was probably 17 plus countries, hop on, hop off on a whim, unlimited travel. And we just bought it for the month and we just went, you know, to, got a flight to Rome and then just went up all through, you know, Italy and Germany and Austria and over to uh, Prague, actually. Mm-hmm. It was actually here a uh, number of years ago, but I spent Christmas Eve uh, in Prague. It was my first time here. And then wow. Budapest and then Paris, Amsterdam and all that stuff. And when you're seeing it for the first time, it's just unbelievable. So, Ireland and uh, in Dublin in particular has amazing uh, uh, memories for me as well. I was just back, I think most recently in 2014, 2014, I think three years ago I was back in Dublin and uh, yeah, just an amazing city. So uh, also a strong endorsement for that one. And so uh, number three on your list, what would you say? Well, I'm going to throw in a recent one. I just, uh, prior to coming here to Prague, we were in Split, Croatia, and I... Loved it. Absolutely. Beautiful coastline. Uh, I had been in Greece many, many years ago and loved Greece, but Croatia was sort of very special. Um, Wish I was there during sailing season. I'm definitely going back, Uh, maybe even staying the whole summer at some point, going sailing. I've heard uh, we were there off season, so there were no boats in the water, but the coastline is absolutely phenomenal, stunning. The sunsets, the sunrises. Um, the old towns, getting lost in the city, the food, it just goes on and on. I mean, I was just uh, really, as a sailor, which is a whole other, uh, you know, interest of mine that's come up over the last couple of years that I've gotten into, I'm, I'm totally into getting back and sailing the Croatian coast. So you've never been to the Dalmatian coast in the summertime? No. Right. So I was, (laughs) I had the good fortune of actually going to spend a little bit of time on the Dalmatian coast last summer. Mm. I was living in, um, I was living in Belgrade in Serbia and for the summer. And actually this is, this actually relates back to my, my Barcelona story. Um, I, (laughs) I learned about the Schengen region the hard way. Because okay. I almost get kicked out of it last, good way to learn. last year. Yeah. So um, for, so for people that don't know, the, the Schengen region is a grouping of countries. How many are there? 27 or so, something like that, um, that are treated as one country for travel purposes. And so, um, and they include most, but not all of the EU countries. So Ireland is not part of it. The UK is not part of it, but most of the EU countries are part of it. But it also includes a number of countries that are not in the EU, like Iceland, for example, is part mm-hmm. of it. And so the Schengen region, you're allowed to go only for a total of 90 days in all of the Schengen countries combined. And then you have to be out for 90 days before you can go back in. Come back in, yeah. So I had spent you know, two months in, in Portugal and a month in, uh, in Spain. I was mostly in the Basque country, uh, actually. And um, then I was like, oh, let's go spend the summer in Barcelona. So I would literally book an Airbnb for five weeks in Barcelona for the summer. And then uh, I found out somebody's like, hey, uh, dude, like there's this thing called the Schengen and you can only stay here for 90 days. 
So I'm thinking like, oh, each country individually would love to have me for 90 days. Uh, and they're like, uh, yeah. So, uh, no, you have to, you're only allowed a total of 90 days. So I'm like, whoa, my, I'm, I'm on like 80 something now. And so I can't even stay for the rest of my, a lot of time here. So I had to literally make a, a five day trip to Morocco Ah, before my, my, you know, uh, a tendency ended in, uh, Europe uh, in the Schengen region, uh, to extend my arc. So I didn't pass the 90 day mark. And then there was no way I was going to be able to go to Barcelona for the summer for this, for this five week thing that I had already booked. So I very politely emailed the Airbnb host and I was like, so I have this small issue with fulfilling this thing and arriving when I booked it. How would you feel about moving my five-week booking? I still want to come and stay at your place. Maybe like say three, four months forward. I just come like three, four months later. I got to get you out of the Schengen for 90 days. And she very politely said, no problem. That would be fine. So I said, great. I'll see you in, uh, you know, uh, October, I think it was. Uh, and then so what I did is I said, okay, Google, non-Schengen country. <laughs> and so Serbia uh, is a non-Schengen country, at least at the time of this recording. <laughs> and uh, so I went to spend the summer in Belgrade and then went down to Cape Town, South Africa. And then I was out for 90 days. And then after you're out for 90 days, you can come back for another 90 days. And so I came back and did my... Five weeks in Barcelona, which was unbelievable, totally amazing in every way, and um, yeah, it was fantastic. So, uh, so, but anyways, while I was in Serbia, I did the Dalmatian Coast trip and uh, did about two weeks where went to Dubrovnik uh, and Split in Croatia and saw the whole coast, and then went out to and this you need to do in the summer, mm. the island of Havar. Okay. I have heard about this. You've heard about the island of Havar, yeah. It's pretty epic. It's pretty legendary. In the summertime, it is just completely uh, off the chain. It's pretty amazing. Uh, so you definitely want to go and do that. And there's a number of other islands, which I didn't go to, but that really, I think, mm. is the preeminent island that you want to spend time on. It is just incredible on a number of levels, just beauty, but also just the, you know, the uh, the party scene and everything else is just completely <laughs> off the chain in the summertime. So uh, amazing. Um, but uh, yeah, okay. So so Barcelona, Dublin, and Split Croatia are your top three. And then bucket list items. You've been to fifty three countries, but what would you say right now at this moment is the top of your bucket list for places you've never visited that you most want to go? I really want to get to the Galapagos Islands. Uh, that has been on my list for quite some time. I will be in South America this uh, rest of this year, really, starting in about April. Uh, so that is, yeah, I, I just adore nature. Um, the whole idea of getting to see these sort of animals in their natural habitat combined with sailing, because <laughs> you must sail around these different islands to see them. Uh, anything that's eco, I just love. Um, respect for nature, understanding, getting to get educated on uh, the world that we live in and the nature and how things have evolved. And I mean, just learning about when Darwin was there and what he learned and what he observed, basically, um, just that's happening this year. <laughs> and so the, uh, the Galapagos Islands are uh, off the coast of Ecuador. Correct. Yes. For folks that don't know. Awesome. Okay. So Jen, are you ready for the 
lightning round. Please. Is this rapid fire? It's kind of rapid fire <laughs> question. They're short questions, but you can take as much time as you want to give an answer. Okay. The lightning round. Okay. What would be one book that you would recommend to the audience that has most impacted you powerfully that you would recommend? Uh, I'm going to go with the Tim Ferriss's The 4-Hour Workweek. And the reason is, I mean, I read it something like 10 years ago when it probably first came out. Um, But it was one of those books where I was like, how do I do this? How do I do this? Because, you know, slogging away and doing work that just to pretend to do work was like not something I could ever buy into. It drove me nuts, the whole 9 to 5 like being in an office and pretending to work. I mean, most of the time you're pretending to work or you're socializing. Socializing is fine too. But I was much more like I needed to be productive. I needed to have results. What were, you know, how do you create results efficiently? How do you free up your time to do things that you love to do? Like go travel and dance and, uh, well, party. I like to party and have fun and meet people and socialize. How do you, how do you do things more efficiently and do your work and do very good quality work you know, in order to free yourself up. That was my whole, and I love that book. That book kind of, it was, you know, four hours. I've never quite gotten to that level. That's very impressive. But nonetheless, uh, I think the message is right. Like, how do you use your brain, use your fortitude, use your intelligence, use your sense of efficiency to really, really zero in on what's important uh, and let everything else fall away and um, keep your focus and that book for me was like really helped me sort of energize me more than anything, I think. Just kind of get into that rhythm and and understand what that means. And uh, like I said, I'm still working on the four-hour part, but, you know. <laughs> well, that also is is usually the book that I also recommend when I'm asked about the most influential book for me over the last 10 years. I remember very vividly when I found it, when it first came out, I had literally just gotten fired from my job. I was working a nine to five, which is actually more like a five to nine uh, job. And I had literally gotten fired unexpectedly. It was one of those, you gotta be in the meeting at three o'clock. Didn't know there was a meeting at three. Yeah, there is. Walk in and it's a whole thing saying, yeah, you're done. Sign this if you want a little severance thing, if you want to voluntarily resign and you'll get such and such. Uh, But get your stuff and get out by five. And I was floored. I was blown away. Uh, I was just emotionally reeling. But as I walked out of the office at five, I said, um, I'm, I'm done working for other people and I'm going to start my own business. And that's it. No supervisors ever again. And the only problem was I didn't know how to start my own business. And so um, they, uh, they took my phone, which was a company phone. Mm. So I literally had to drive first to the Verizon store. Uh, to buy a phone to call my mother to tell her I was fired. Uh, And then after that, I was like, okay, I'm starting my own business. But wait a minute. I don't know how to start a business. What is that business? I'm going to go to Barnes & Noble, which may have been designed by Jen McGee. uh, And (laughs) didn't know it at the time, but may very well have been designed by you. Uh, um, uh, Although it wasn't because it was was two years before you got Barnes & Noble. So this was the pre 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 Jen McGee era. This was like the 2007 uh, uh, era. Uh, so prior to your design, but, uh, go to Barnes and Noble, start looking at the, th- and I remember 
that particular book and I grabbed it and I looked at the back of it and I read the thing and I said, this is the book for me. And I bought it and I just immersed myself in it. And I said, this is what I want to do. And the same thing stood out to me, right? And, and, and when you read the book, it's not so much about the four hours specifically. It's about the concept, like the mind-changing concept of understanding the freedom of mobility as a currency mm-hmm. along with income and along with time. Mm-hmm. And usually people are trading time for money and people are locationally restricting themselves by having to go into the office every day and tying themselves to one location and living a life where they're just loading up, you know, making more and more money and loading up with consumer goods or mortgages and stuff and car payments that are just tying them to one place. As And this was just a completely liberating concept for me about pursuing the importance of pursuing location independence and the freedom of mobility and understanding that as a currency of equal or perhaps even greater value than income. And so all of a sudden I said, whoa, I mean, that just blew me away. And so I knew from day one when I wanted to start my business that I am going to design a business plan that is going to create for me total location independence and the freedom of mobility. And it's going to give me control over my time and allow me to sleep until noon if I want to and whatever else. And as long as I can create enough income to cover my expenses and get by, that is literally, income is literally the third most important of those currencies, right? Location independence Mm. and freedom and control of your time are clearly more important than income. And then income as long as you can cover your expenses and then obviously eventually try to get, you know, more and more of that. Okay, but that's definitely third tier stuff, which is the opposite of the way that most people think about it is, oh, I got to make money and I'll just surrender all my time. I'll work 18 hours a day and I'll just restrict myself to this one location and go into the office for six or seven hours a day, uh, six or seven days a week. So, you know, so that for me was just game changing. And so then I knew when I started my business, uh, when I started Maverick and I, you know, got my two, two business partners that went into that with me, we from day one said, this is what we're doing. We're building a location-independent business, and my business partners and I, we never lived in the same state even from the founding of our companies. We just forced it to have a virtual infrastructure, and we just built it from there. So totally agreed. That's a great book recommendation. And that was a long conversation about in, the, in, in what's called the lightning route. <laughs> hey, that's okay. <laughs> it's all about but the I said, but I qualified, the I qualified the terms, though, which is that the questions are lightning fast, but the answers, the answers do not might have to take be. a little bit longer. That's right. Um, okay. Favorite app or productivity tool that you're using right now? Box. I don't know what that is. So <laughs> tell me about it. I'm excited. Box.com. Uh, well, it started out as box.net many, many years ago. Uh, particularly, it fits me and our sort of collaboration style, uh, which is based, we're project-based, right? So we have a project, we get a project, we have to design everything around that project. Um, it's, uh, it's a collaborative software, basically. It's online, purely online. I mean, you set up folders, you share things, you can share documents. I find it to be a glorified Dropbox. A lot of people know Dropbox. Box came was, was around similar times. It's just a slightly different style. Dropbox is not uh, robust enough for me, per, in particular. But um, 
Yeah, I, that's my lifesaver. To be honest, without Box, I couldn't do a lot of these things. Uh, it allows me to organize staff. I can assign them tasks on it. Uh, we can communicate on it. We can chat on it. We post comments. I can track everything, like what, who has downloaded what. You know, it's it's it tracks everything. It's great. I don't have to like, you know, watch it twenty four seven. But if I need a trail, if I need to know who's doing what, um, if I need clients to look at something, I can I can really control all of that through this uh, platform. Awesome. What is your favorite movie of all time? So you asked me that earlier, and I was a little bit a little bit embarrassed, but uh, if it's I think it's Forrest Gump, you know, and I and I say that because it's a little bit cheesy. I, I know that, and I'm not usually a cheesy person, but. Uh, there's just something about that movie that I can watch over and over again about the storyline and everything. It's just sort of this very sweet. What I like about it is that it tells the story of this man's life and its journey through his life and sort of the unexpected things that happen to him through him just moving forward. And I think um, it resonated with me a lot. It was just like, here's this guy who's not even, you know, he has certain limitations even. And yet, in a way, he's created this life that's very empowering and very phenomenal and worth talking about. And interest, just simply interesting, his journeys, like each little journey is this story in and of itself. And it's just told in this way that's so charming and sort of naive and sort of, I don't know, just, just uh, I don't know, just different and refreshing. And uh, very few films kind of break through in that way. Um, but um, it's always, it, I don't know, there's a timeless aspect to it, and I think it, it, it is relevant, um, you know, throughout. And I just love it. It's charming. I mean, Tom Hanks was amazing in it, and, um, you know, he, I don't know if he's done any films quite like that since. But, um, yeah, from a long-term perspective. <laughs> what celebrity or author or public figure that is currently alive that you've never met would you most love to have dinner with? Michelle Obama. <laughs> I think she's free now, right? I think she's uh, <laughs> slightly more time now, <laughs> which means that that could potentially be an achievable goal. Um, why, just, why do you pick her? Uh, I think she had amaz- an amazing professional career before um, she entered the White House um, as Obama's wife, more or less. I mean... And she's a phenomenal, intelligent, brilliant person in and of herself. And she's presented herself as a true partner in that relationship. And I don't know, I just like all her stories, all her behind the scenes stories. Um, And also just she has so much potential still. Like, I mean, both of them actually are very young in their career. And uh, I'm just fascinated to see what they will both do. But her in particular, just because, um, I mean, woman, very empowering, very representative, I think, of, like, forward thinking. And um, I just think she'd be amazing to sit down and have a conversation with. So if you literally, if you were able to, like, let's say you actually prioritize that as a goal. Yeah. Let's say you literally said, like, dinner with Michelle Obama is, like, a real-life goal for Jen McGee. Yes. Um, I need to get I, I need to get moving on it. <laughs> I know. I want to I I try to support you in that goal too. I want to I want to make that happen for you. Uh, whatever I can do. But uh, let's say you actually got that dinner and you were sitting down with her. What would you What would you ask her? Or what would you like? How would that go? Like she's literally sitting across from you. Like what would you kind of most want to know from her 
or, you know, ask her. Well, I mean, you'd have to break her down to the point where she could talk off the record. I mean, that's key. No, no, this is a private <laughs> dinner. This is just you and her. Yeah, I mean, I would, I, look, you'd want to know behind the scenes, like, who were all these great leaders really like? When you met them, what was your true perspective? Like, what did you really think, you know? Right, right. <laughs> what did you really think when all these different people came traipsing through the White House and, you know, you had to put on your best uh, face and you had to greet them all with, like, the same amount of dignity and everything? What's the real story? <laughs> what were they really really like what annoyed you what you know did you find admirable in each of their you know personalities um all of that I mean she has seen so much that she can't talk about <laughs> normally like publicly it'd be just fascinating to to hear her insight for sure okay what is your favorite personally your favorite blog or podcast that you read or listen to that you would uh, recommend well, it's been hard on the road, I have to admit. When I was in the States, it's I'm something that, I mean, you know, when you're riding the subway in New York, it's very easy to have your downloaded podcast and you're ready to go. Um, traveling, it's always a little bit more challenging. But I, I've, the latest thing that I've been really into is the whole serial, um, which is just a very fresh perspective about kind of pulling up these old cases and looking at them through a different perspective, somebody that's not in law enforcement or somebody who's not a lawyer, and uh, just, um, you know, following sort of the train of thought and, un, you know, digging through the old facts and the perspectives and just revealing, like, how much human perception and sort of bias can enter into... Um, cases and our whole uh, basically understanding of how the world works. Um, and Serial to me was like this great series that's at least the first podcast, the whole first series um, is just a, a refreshing taste of that, I think. So we are getting, uh, we are just finishing up our bottle mm. of Carmenier here, which means that uh, we're getting to the conclusion <laughs> of this podcast discussion. It's uh, just after midnight here in uh, Prague. So let me ask you this. Where can people find you if they want to contact you, if they want to learn more about your business, they want to learn more about you. Can they follow you on social media? Do you have a website? Where can people find you? Uh, I mean, LinkedIn is a great resource. I mean, I have my professional profile on there. You spell can, your spell your name. How do they find you? What do they? Do you have a, a handle on social media? How do they get to you? Absolutely. So it's just I, everything's through my name, basically Jennifer McGee. So it's J E N N I F E R M A G E E. And uh, so LinkedIn, it's the same. It's like LinkedIn um, slash Jennifer McGee would be my profile. Same with Twitter. If you look at, look for me on Twitter, it's twitter.com, again, slash the Jennifer McGee. Um, and uh, Facebook as well. These are all, I just go by my name. No, no other, you know, strange, mysterious stuff. I am who I am. And <laughs> you can find me by my name. <laughs> Um, you know, web search, whatever. Uh, also, you can just always email me at jennifer at retailinthecity.com. And that's your website also if they want to check out your... Yeah, if they want to work, you know, check out what the type of work that we do. Uh, it's just retailinthecity.com and we have different projects up there and sort of a little bit about our mission statement, what we try to do to help clients, uh, how we position ourselves differently. And uh, we're easily contactable, you know, reach out, um, happy to 
share stories, advice, insight. I don't think that starting a business is easy. I think it, it's, it, it is like we talked about a roller coaster ride. Um, it's easier now looking back on it. At the time, it was a dark tunnel. Uh, so, I mean, I'm happy to help people try to point them in the right direction. At the end of the day, you would just have to follow your own path. Uh, nothing that I can tell you specifically might be right for you. All, most of what we can do is just talk about our own stories, and maybe you'll find a nugget of information in there that's valuable, or if nothing else, be inspired. I think the key thing is just be inspired and, and keep going. Um, and, uh, you know, make something for yourself and see what happens. Um, but it's hard. It, it's, not, it's not the easy road. It's the hard road. Uh, there are easier paths in life for sure, but not as rewarding. So I think just hearing that, though, you know, for me, like when I was going through my entrepreneurial journey uh, and hitting some of those hard times, just hearing from other entrepreneurs that just validated, yes, everybody has massive catastrophic failures and everybody has incredible difficult downtimes and hard times and depressing, desolate, lonely, you know, periods that sometimes go on for a long time. But at the end, if you're able to be, if you're able to persevere and you're able to be resilient enough and you're able to be determined enough because you have the vision, like that for me was it, right? Like reading the four hour work week and having that vision, this is possible. This is what I want. I know that I can do it. I have confidence in myself and my business partners and the people around me that we can achieve it. And I want to be able to live all around the world and run my business and have this lifestyle. And, it, and you just have that vision um, and you just don't give up ever that it is possible to achieve. And I think you are an amazing example of that. And uh, I appreciate you being on the show. Absolutely loved it. Bring, bring the wine anytime. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. And uh, we will talk to you soon. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on real estate investing for digital nomads? How to buy U.S. rental properties from anywhere in the world and finance an epic international lifestyle? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash nomad. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash nomad. Do you want to learn how to travel the world for a year plus with carry-on luggage only and look good while you're doing it? Go to themaverickshow.com slash packing to see a free recorded webinar and learn exactly how Matt does it. He shows you the luggage he uses, the specific items he packs, and the travel brands he likes most. Even if you're just looking to go on shorter trips, but pack more efficiently and eliminate your checked luggage, you won't want to miss this. You can watch the free recorded webinar at themaverickshow.com forward slash packing.